Hello, everyone, and welcome to the November 7th edition of the WorkCom Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. A WCAB panel ruled that a carrier cannot disqualify multiple workers' compensation judges in a death benefits case filed by the dependents of a deceased workers' compensation defense attorney. In this case, Nicole Schilder, the attorney's spouse, his daughter, and his son filed death benefit claims alleging that attorney Donald Marsau died on December 4, 2021 as a result of the repetitive and accumulative stress of his employment with the Stander Rubens Thomas Kinsey Workers' Compensation Defense Firm, which was insured by Defendant Valley Forge Insurance, administered by CNA Claims Plus. The two applications were filed at the Sacramento District Office of the WCAB, and the defendant soon filed its petition for disqualification and request to transfer venue based on the disqualification of the judges. The petition asked to disqualify all of the workers' comp judges at the Sacramento and Stockton district offices and also requested a change of venue to a district office other than the Sacramento and Stockton offices. A WCAB panel considered the allegations in the petition and the contents of a report by the presiding judge recommending denial and denied the petition and returned the matter to the WCJ for further proceedings as appropriate. In the case of Nicole Childer, Donald Marceau deceased versus Standard Rubens Thomas Kinsey. The Labor Code section specifically states that a party may object to a particular workers' compensation judge being assigned to the case at issue. There is no statutory or case law that allows the disqualification of multiple work comp judges by a party filing a single petition to disqualify. And the appeals board cited a significant panel decision that says parties may not seek blanket disqualifications and that disqualifications must be sought on a case-by-case basis. And the petition for change of venue has to be initially addressed by the presiding work comp judge at the district office where the petition is filed and subsequently an aggrieved party may seek review by the appeals board. Thus, the request to transfer venue was not properly before the WCAB panel and was therefore not addressed at this time. Once the proper venue has been determined and the matter has been assigned to a work comp judge, the defendant may seek disqualification if it's appropriate. The panel also said that it is important to note that a party's unilateral, subjective perception of an appearance of bias does not constitute a factual or legal basis for disqualification of a work comp judge. An agricultural growers self-insurance group sued one of its former members for the $3 million cost of post-termination claims that were filed after that grower left the group. 
the self-insurance group, or SIG, S-I-G, in this case, is California Agricultural Network Incorporated, also known as CAN, C-A-N, and they're located in Ontario, California. It is a collective of growers who have pooled their resources to successfully form a self-insured group. According to a lawsuit filed in Ventura County Superior Court, because CAN's members share responsibility for all other members' workers' compensation liabilities, and by becoming a member of a SIG such as CAN, members take on legal duties to every other member, including fiduciary duties. The lawsuit alleges that Howling Nurseries Oxnard, Inc., that's H-N-O-I, Howling Nurseries Oxnard, Inc., became a member of CAN back in 2006 and remained a member until September 21 while operating a tomato farm in Camarillo, California. In 2021, HNOI underwent a name change to its present name, Longvine California Incorporated, when all of a person named Casey Howling sold his interest in HONI to them, and that these transactions were concealed from CAN, and they allegedly failed to report the transaction to the Office of Self-Insurance Plans. The plaintiffs say that under CAN's bylaws, membership in the group is not transferable, and the defendants were required to report the structural ownership changes with HONI to CAN so that CAN and its members could evaluate whether the restructured organization was suitable to remain a self-insured member of CAN. According to the allegations, HNOI actually no longer had the financial strength or suitable management to remain a CAN member at that time, and it could no longer remain in business, and it sold its Camarillo facility to a marijuana grower and ended up laying off all of its staff. More than 100 laid-off employees filed workers' comp claims against HNOI after being laid off, and CAN was left responsible to pay the post-termination claims of its injured workers. Casey Howling, in the meantime, started a new company, Howling's Camarillo, Inc., hiring back the same employees who he and his co-defendants laid off and continued HNOL's former tomato-growing operations on the exact same site that had been farmed by HNOI. CAN therefore seeks damages in its lawsuit against several defendants for losses caused by various theories of liability that left the insurance network holding the bag, they say, for more than $3 million in workers' comp claims. According to a report, on this suit by Pacific Coast Business Times, the Howling's Tomatoes property in Camrio was sold to Glass House Group for about $93 million and was converted part of the space into cannabis greenhouses. There were 486 employees in August of 2021 after Glass House agreed to buy the property. And in employment law, 
the Court of Appeal ruled that labor code provisions nullified an employer's post-litigation arbitration agreement. The case is valuable as an illustration of how difficult it might be to create and implement a binding arbitration agreement with employees and how missteps in the implementation can badly affect the outcome of litigation. In this case, John Schwenk began working for Bristol Farms in 2009. In September 2020, he filed a class action complaint based on wage and hour claims. Seven months after he filed his case in the trial court, Bristol Farms distributed an arbitration agreement to its employees covering a broad range of claims, including those involved in this litigation. The agreement contained an opt-out procedure for employees to follow if they did not want to be bound by the agreement. It was undisputed that one day after Mr. Schwenk signed and submitted the acknowledgement page of the arbitration agreement, he came in and asked for it back and shredded it. But the opt-out provisions required that he notify his employer's legal department, which he did not do. Nonetheless, Bristol Farms filed a motion to compel arbitration, contending that Mr. Schwenk impliedly assented to the proposed agreement to arbitrate. The trial court rejected the contention and denied the motion, and the Court of Appeal agreed and affirmed the trial court in the unpublished case of Schwenk v. Bristol Farms. Bristol Farms argued it is entitled to reversal as a matter of law because Schwenk agreed to Bristol Farms' arbitration agreement by continuing his employment, and also that Schwenk's failure to comply with the opt-out procedure in the arbitration agreement constituted his consent to be bound by the arbitration agreement's terms. In response, Mr. Schwenk notes the legislature's enactment of Labor Code Section 432.6 in 2019, which prohibits any agreement that requires an employee to opt out of a waiver or take any affirmative action in order to preserve their rights. And in another employer-employee arbitration agreement, Battle Seek Shoes, LLC hired Brittany Davis as a sales associate in August 2018. As part of her new hire paperwork, they both signed an arbitration agreement to resolve any and all disputes or claims each may have against the other. Davis's employment with Sheik would prove to be short as she resigned a mere three months after being hired. According to a civil suit she filed in March 2019, she was subjected to ongoing sexually explicit and demeaning comments, unwarranted touching, and indecent exposure from her co-workers and others. On July 8th, the employer appeared in the case represented by counsel, answered Ms. Davis's complaint, and asserted the arbitration agreement as an affirmative defense. Then a few weeks later, the employer filed a case management statement requesting a non-jury trial for which they would be ready in 12 months. The employer also said they anticipated conducting written discovery, depositions, and expert discovery, and filing motions in the civil case.
so the court scheduled a jury trial for July 20, 2020. But six months before the scheduled trial, the employer's attorney substituted out of the case, leaving the employer representing itself. So the court granted a motion and continued the trial date to September 28, 2020, to allow the employer to seek counsel. Then seven months after being unrepresented by counsel, the employer found a new attorney who then moved to compel arbitration. This motion was made about 17 months after the employer was served with the lawsuit and seven months before the new trial date, and thus the court ruled that the employer waived arbitration and denied the motion, which the Court of Appeal affirmed in the published case of Davis v. Sheikh Shoes, LLC. After the appeal was filed, the United States Supreme Court issued its 2022 decision in Morgan v. Sundance, Incorporated, holding that under the Federal Arbitration Act, courts may not condition a determination of a waiver of an agreement based on a requirement that the other party show some kind of prejudice. Courts have recognized that where the Federal Arbitration Act applies, whether a party has waived a right to arbitrate is a matter of federal, not state law, and the California Supreme Court has not yet addressed the U.S. Supreme Court Morgan decision. Thus, it is not spoken on whether prejudice remains a critical consideration in the waiver inquiry under California law as it held prior to the U.S. Supreme Court Morgan decision. But, even if the trial court may have improperly conditioned its waiver determination on a showing of prejudice, its discretion may still be affirmed so long as any other correct legal reason exists to do so. Sheik's lengthy delay in moving to compel arbitration cannot be squared with an intent to arbitrate. By the time the employer filed its motion, 17 months had elapsed, elapsed since it was served with a lawsuit. The Court of Appeal concluded by noting that in light of the employer's nearly one-and-a-half-year delay in moving to compel arbitration, the trial court had ample evidence from which to conclude the employer's actions were inconsistent with an intent to arbitrate. And now our crime report. There has been an epic failure of a $370 million fraud detection tech system in California and seven other states. Deloitte is the largest professional services network and is considered one of the big four accounting firms. The company secured multi-million dollar deals in California and seven other states based on promises of powerful anti-fraud technology and to secure scalable telecoms infrastructure. Deloitte touted advanced AI-driven fraud detection as well as identity proofing to help prevent unauthorized activity technologies that it said had been deployed across U.S. states for over a decade. So Deloitte was seen as the obvious choice to help states with the incoming tidal wave of COVID benefit applications. And the director of the Ohio Department of Job and Family Services said, Deloitte 
was the only company that had such a production-ready system available. For contracts in California, Colorado, Illinois, New Mexico, New York, Ohio, Virginia, and Wisconsin that were worth at least a combined $370 million, Deloitte either deployed tailored UFAX systems or upgraded legacy infrastructure and built up attached teleservice centers. But later it was shown that in states where Deloitte was either asked to help prevent fraud or ran the benefit system, there was as much as $21.2 billion in fraud. And the UFAX system alone saw up to $3.2 billion in fraud. And in Ohio, the price of the Deloitte contract spiraled, starting at an initial $10 million in 2020 to $122 million as of October 2022. Meanwhile, at least $166 million in fraudulent applications was paid out through the Deloitte system in Ohio, fiscal year between July 2020 and June 2021. And this data is incomplete. According to a search warrant viewed by Forbes, the breach of the UFAC system in Ohio was rudimentary and brazen, despite Deloitte's claims of advanced anti-fraud detection. And the search warrants said one Ohio fraud suspect was advertising her ability to remove fraud flags on Instagram and successfully claimed unemployment under her own name, even though she was working for both the Ohio Department of Job and Family Services and the U.S. Postal Service at the same time. The same suspect in the Ohio case also claimed to be able to get fraudulent applications approved in other states where she did not have direct access to the system and was particularly successful in California, where Deloitte had deals worth a total of $88 million with the EDD for COVID-19 benefits disbursement. In late 2020, the suspect's customers had fraudulent applications approved in California, totaling over $50,000 in payouts. In another case, a teleservices representative with access to the Michigan unemployment system was convicted of approving hundreds of fraudulent claims that led to the loss of $3.8 million in government funds and was able to remove fraud flags on the Michigan Benefits Database for weeks after her termination. And Deloitte's woes with its COVID benefits contracts go right back to the early days of the pandemic. In May 2020, a mistake by Deloitte led to personal information of as many as 240,000 unemployment insurance applicants in Colorado, Illinois, and Ohio leaking on government benefits websites. The company settled a class action suit over this breach for $4.95 million in 2021. A federal grand jury charged 46-year-old Sohail Mamdani, who lives in Los Banos, for mail fraud and money laundering in connection with the disability insurance fraud scheme among other related crimes. 
According to court documents, Dr. Mamdani submitted over 6,000 initial claims to the EDD for disability insurance payments between February 2020 and March 2022, despite having never seen or treated the majority of the claimants. Dr. Mamdani would charge the purported patient a fee for both the initial disability claim and any supplemental claims. As a result, EDD suffered losses of over $53 million in disability claims paid. Mom Donnie is separately charged with unlawfully using another doctor's DEA registration number for the purpose of unlawfully obtaining controlled substances, and he wrote a number of fraudulent prescriptions in the names of other individuals in order to obtain controlled substances for himself. And in regulatory news, the DWC published the 32nd Annual Workers' Compensation Audit Unit Report, summarizing the result of audits conducted for 2021. Congratulations to the 31 entities who met or exceeded the Profile Audit Review, that's the PAR standard, and the following were in the top five positions with the best uh, audit scores. Number one, Warner Brothers Studio Facilities in Burbank. Number two, Schools Insurance Authority in Sacramento. Number three, RICA and RICC in San Francisco. Number four was Zenith Insurance Company in Los Angeles. And number five, Cherokee Insurance Company in Sterling Heights, Michigan. The Labor Code provides the framework for oversight and enforcement of the regulations of the Administrative Director for the prompt and accurate provisions of workers' compensation benefits. The performance of any insurer, self-insurer, or third-party administrator is rated for action in specific areas of benefit provision. Of foremost importance is the payment of all indemnity owed to the injured worker for an industrial injury. The timeliness of all initial and subsequent indemnity payments and compliance with the regulations of the Administrative Director for provision of notice for a qualified or agreed medical examination are also measurable performance factors. The audit unit completed 40 audits, of which 37 were routinely selected for profile audit review, and another three audits were selected as what's called target audits based on the failure of a prior audit. This year's audit subjects consisted of 13 insurance companies, four self-administered, self-insured employers, 18 third-party administrators, and five insurance companies or third-party administrators that combined claims-adjusting locations. And the audit unit completed one utilization review investigation based on a credible referral and complaint. The statewide 2021 audit ranking report ranks all organizations audited according to their performance measured by the performance standards. Low performance rating numbers reflect good claims handling performance, and high performance rating numbers reflect poor performance. The complete report for this audit shows the remaining scores of the audit participants for 2021 in addition to these top five. 
And in medical news, the CDC updated their recommendations for using opioids to treat pain, removing specific dose and duration targets that pain experts said had caused unintended harm. According to the CDC press release, the recommendations are voluntary and provide flexibility to clinicians and patients to support individualized patient-centered care. They should not be used as an inflexible, one-size-fits-all policy or law, or applied as a rigid standard of care, or to replace clinical judgment about personalized treatment. The CDC followed a rigorous scientific process using the best available evidence and expert consultation to develop the new 2022 clinical practice guideline. An independent federal advisory committee for peer reviewers and members of the public reviewed the draft update guideline, and CDC revised it in response to this feedback. CDC also engaged with patients with pain, caregivers, and clinicians to gain insights and gather feedback from people directly impacted by the guideline. The expanded guideline aims to ensure equitable access to effective, informed, individualized, and safe pain care. The new guidance reflects the evolution in thinking of how opioids should be used and the reality of how they are being used. The initial guidelines, which were issued back in 2016, helped further drive down opioid prescribing levels that had been in decline since 2012. But critics contended the 2016 guidelines introduced other harms by leading to unsafe dose reductions for people already on opioids and some long-term patients being cut off from medication they depended on. The authors of the original guidelines warned in 2019 that their recommendations were being misapplied. And in a commentary also published this Thursday, the authors wrote that they revised their recommendations because the original document was improperly cited as a justification for certain policies that restricted opioid access. Nine California hospitals were given Specialty Excellence Awards in Surgery. HealthGrades named the 50 recipients of its 2023 Specialty Excellence Awards October 25th, including the top hospitals for surgical care. Using 2019-2021 Medicare provider analysis and review data, HealthGrades analyzed risk-adjusted mortality and complication rates for 15 of the most common in-hospital surgical procedures. And nine of California hospitals were on the list of 50 national hospitals to receive the award. To help consumers evaluate and compare hospital performance specific to specialty areas, HealthGrades communicates performance in two ways, through ratings and awards. Patient outcome data for 33 conditions or procedures were analyzed for virtually every hospital in the country. The first and most fundamental way that HealthGrades communicates performance is through star ratings. Star ratings are an evaluation of the hospital's actual performance as compared to the predicted performance for that hospital 
based on a specified risk adjustment model applied to that hospital. And this last story was about the good hospitals. Now, let's talk about our next story of the not-so-good hospitals. Under programs set up by the Affordable Care Act, the federal government has cut payments to hospitals that have high rates of readmissions and those with the highest numbers of infections and patient injuries. For the readmission penalties, Medicare cuts as much as 3% for each patient, although the average is generally much lower. The patient safety penalties cost hospitals 1% of Medicare payments over the federal fiscal year. The Hospital Readmissions Reduction Program has been a mainstay of Medicare's hospital payment system since it began back in 2012. In addition, the 21st Century Cures Act directs CMS to assess a hospital's performance relative to other hospitals with a similar proportion of patients who are duly eligible for Medicare and full Medicaid benefits. The legislation requires estimated payment under the peer grouping methodology to equal payments under the non-peer grouping methodology to maintain budget neutrality. California Healthline has established a searchable database of the outcome of this review in a database searchable by state or hospital name. It is available on their website and is open for free to the public. But the federal government has eased its annual punishments for hospitals with higher-than-expected readmission rates and an acknowledgement of the upheaval COVID-19 pandemic has caused resulting in the lightest penalties since 2014. The pandemic threw hospitals into turmoil, inundating them with COVID patients while forcing many to postpone elective surgeries for months. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news, our podcast, and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd Scarin, Manukian Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.